Isaiah chapter 33. Woe to you, O destroyer, you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, O traitor, you who have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. O Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning our salvation in times of distress. At the thunder of your voice, the people flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. You plunder, O nations, is harvested by young locusts. Like a swarm of locusts, men pounce on it. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Look, their brave men cry aloud in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways are deserted, no travellers are on the roads. The treaty is broken, its witnesses are despised. No one is respected. The land mourns and wastes away. Lebanon is ashamed and withers. Sharon is like the Araba, and Basham and Carmel drop their leaves. Now will I arise, says the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I be lifted up. You conceive chaff. You give birth to straw. Your breath is a fire that consumes you. The peoples will be burned as if, if, if to lime. Like cut thorn bushes, they will be set ablaze. You who are far away, hear what I have done. You who are near, acknowledge my power. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the, the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? He who walks righteously and speaks what is right, who rejects gain from extortion, and keeps his hand from accepting bribes, who stops his ears against plots of murder and sh shuts his eyes against contemplating evil. This is the man who will dwell on the heights, who re whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. His bread will be supplied and water will not fail him. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. In your thoughts you will ponder the former terror. Where is that chief officer? Where is the one who took the revenue? Where is the officer in charge of the towers? You will see those arrogant people no more, those people of obscure speech with their strange, incomprehensible tongue. 
Look upon Zion, the city of our festivals. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a peaceful abode, a tent that will not be moved. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its ropes broken. There the Lord, our mighty one, it will be like a place of broad rivers and streams. No galley with oars will ride them, no mighty ship will sail them. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Your rigging hangs loose, the mast is not held secure, the sail is not spread. Then an abundant spoils will be divided, and even the lame will carry off plunder. No one living in Zion will say, I am ill, and the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pray. It's not, uh, not immediately obvious what the chapter's about, so let's pray that uh, God will... Uh, guide us. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that we'll understand this, uh, these words from Isaiah from so many hundred years ago and help us to apply them to our Christian lives today. Amen. Do please keep Isaiah 33 open in front of you. I think you'll find it helpful just to have it there. Uh, if I was to ask you to write down the one thing that all Christians have in common uh, what is the thing that unites us? What do we all have in common? I wonder what you would write. Would you write that all Christians believe in God? Well, plenty of non-Christians believe in God. Would you write that all Christians go to church? Well, I've often said you're not a car necessarily if you go to a garage or a hamburger if you go to McDonald's. So you're not necessarily a Christian if you go to church. In fact, I heard there's been a book published recently by a fellow vicar in Oxford, a friend of mine actually, um, with a slightly different take on the Christian faith, and he's called his book The Christian Atheist, and it legitimizes unbelievers going to church and urging church people not to disturb their unbelief. Don't misunderstand me, of course, unbelievers are very welcome here at St. Andrews. We great to have welcome unbelievers to our services, but I do hope that we will disturb your unbelief, if that's how you are. Perhaps all Christians are nice people. Look around you. <laughs> well, I've got, I've got plenty of nice friends who, are, who don't share my faith, and, and a few Christians that I struggle with, and apparently, apparently there are one or two who struggle with me. Perhaps we all read the Bible and pray. I fear some Christians don't do that very much. Perhaps all have been baptized. Well, the thief on the cross didn't have time to get baptized, but he was told he would be in paradise. I grew up thinking that basically all Christians were English, and then I got a life. Now, the answer to the question, what Christians have in common, is to be found in Isaiah chapter 33. And I'm going to tell you at the end of the sermon what it is, so that you stay awake for a while. And it's difficult to make much sense of Isaiah 33 unless we get the Old Testament context clear. You could do that. I'm not going to do this now because we've got communion this morning. I want to press on a little bit. But in 2 Kings chapter 18, you get the context of the prophecy that Isaiah is talking about here. 
the Jerusalem is under siege from the Assyrian king Sennacherib, who had made a treaty with them. Uh, they were paying the 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 um, Judah were paying a tribute to the Assyrians so that they wouldn't get attacked, and he broke the treaty, thus the reference to the traitor in the opening verses. And now the city is under siege, and uh, Sennacherib challenges the people to renounce the king, Hezekiah, and his God, and accept the terms of surrender as they besiege the city. And so Hezekiah consults the great prophet Isaiah, and it's important to understand a lot of these prophecies of Isaiah in these uh, these first half of the book are very much in the context of the historical setting of what's going on in Jerusalem. Isaiah is right there in the middle of it all as the drama unfolds. And he has, Isaiah, when he's consulted by the king, has encouraging news, which is reported to us in in the the account in 2 Kings 18 and 19, that there will be rescue, and in particular that judgment will come upon Sennacherib. And we're told in due course that uh, that, 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 uh, illness sweeps through the Assyrian army, they withdraw the siege, Sennacherib goes home, and just as Assyrian, just as uh, Isaiah prophesies, he is uh, killed in a palace coup and dies by the sword. He and uh, Isaiah's prophecy is proven to be correct. That is the context here. Great, uh, a great threat and the prophecy of Isaiah of a rescue that is coming from the immediate peril of the Assyrian siege. So back in Isaiah 53, in the midst of, uh, of the terror gripping the people, Isaiah brings glimpses of reality. Look, for instance, at, uh, at verse 2. Uh, for the moment in Isaiah 33. O Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in times of distress. The reality is that the people, through the prophecy of Isaiah, recognize their great need. And again, in verse verse 14, they realize that they're undeserving of rescue. That actually, the godlessness prior to Hezekiah's reign and the... um, Uh, The general behavior of the people who are supposed to be the people of God warrants not God's rescue, but God's judgment. Look at verse 14. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? They recognize that they're in trouble because they have not been holy. They have not kept God's word. So if they are blessed with rescue, they conclude if they are rescued from the threat of Sennacherib, then they recognize that they must live lives that are better in future. And that's what verse 15 and following is all about. It's about a moral regeneration of the people. And it's not done, and this is really important, it's not done in order to merit God's rescue. That has come by grace, but in response to it. So Isaiah paints a picture of what Jerusalem will look like if Sennacherib is defeated and Yahweh rules. If Yahweh is the king, not Sennacherib, not Hezekiah. If Yahweh is the king over Judah and Israel, this is what it will look like. And I love, for instance, the, the picture uh, of, um, of the galleys um, on, the, on the broad rivers in verse 21. 
There the Lord will be our mighty one. It will be like a place of broad rivers and streams. No galley with oars will ride on them. No mighty ship will sail them. Here is a picture of peace. You see, for the Jews, the Old Testament, the sea, all water, in fact, was a terrifying place of Leviathan monsters and terrible storms, an evil place. Remember, for instance, Jonah's terror when he is thrown into the sea. Better to be in a whale than in the sea. Uh, Israel was not, a, was not a naval power. So a picture of the great broad rivers of Babylon, Tigris and Euphrates, and of Nineveh, these rivers being places of peace and harmony where there are no warships, no galleys, uh, no war. That for the people is a powerful sign of the benefits of Yahweh's rule. Even, even the waters will become safe place if we live under Yahweh's rule, if the Lord is our king. So the chapter mixes the vision of Israel's immediate rescue and the establishment of good government under Hezekiah, the removal of the threat of Sennacherib, which was very short-lived, incidentally, with a vision of an altogether different time when the Lord, when Yahweh, would truly be king. That's the context of the chapter. That's what it's all about. Hezekiah made the big mistake uh, subsequent to this of revealing all his treasures to envoys from Babylon, not from Assyria, but from Babylon. And they reported, of course, inevitably, that taking Jerusalem would be profitable. There was great wealth there, which, of course, had been uh, accumulated by David and Solomon over many years. And, of course, therefore, it became a place for Babylon to attack, and that, in due course, came about. So he was proud. He was showing off his great possessions to Babylon, and it was the downfall, his and his successors' downfall. So, but nevertheless, though pride was Hezekiah's besetting sin, he was overall a good king, and he died comforted by the thought that there had been peace and security in his lifetime. The threat of Sennacherib was, remo was removed. Isaiah's greater vision is one we can make much more sense of with Jesus' announcement of the kingdom, that the rule of Yahweh is coming into our hearts and into our lives, that the blessings of eternal life will accompany that rule, that this rule will be established in the generation of Jesus and for always, and uh, we will be citizens of His kingdom. That is what Isaiah's prophetic words are pointing to. And of course, quite a lot of the imagery here has a sort of feel of the book of Revelation about it, a picture of a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So what's all that got to do with us? Well, two vital lessons which we must remember and which I hope we can take into this coming week. The first lesson is this, that the Lord is King. The Lord is king. Verse 22, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, it is he who will save us. History may seem very confused. My life might seem, both at a personal level and at a national and international level, extremely uncertain, and it often is. We cannot bring in God's reign. We cannot do it. It is beyond our power 
to bring in God's reign. We are like, as he says in verse 23, we are like a stricken ship with all its riggings smashed to pieces, unable to sail. We are, so to speak, crippled morally and unable, it seems, to really make the world the place that God wants it to be. There is no Marxist utopia to work for, nor is there a perfect secular state to anticipate, perhaps when, I don't know, bishops have been removed from the House of Lords or RE banned in schools or whatever it happens to be, whichever terrible iniquity we Christians are accused of. The fact is that human beings are flawed and therefore society and the world in which we live in this interim time before Christ comes again, the world will always be a bit of a foul up. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. That is the reality that we must face and accept. It will be the case. Suffering is an inevitable part of our human existence. God's people are called then, as now, to be lights in this dark world, to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So any share that God's people may have in the promised blessings that come from Yahweh's reign will be by grace alone. We're caught up in the general darkness, but by grace we are given a glimpse of the light and called to share it. All mankind deserves judgment for the Lord is King, but graciously He has provided rescue. The Lord is King. Secondly, who can possibly expect to live in the place where God is King? What hope is there for anyone? If, God, if we are hopelessly lost and God is king and there is a massive gulf between us, how can we possibly hope to live in the place where God is king? What hope is there? The disciples, you may recall, memorably said to Jesus when he sent the rich young ruler sorrowfully away, they said, who then can be saved? If this really good bloke, I mean, he's much better than most of us, if he can't be saved, who can be? And you may recall Jesus' reply. He said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So look for a moment with me as I close at verse 24, for it holds the secret of life and the answer to my opening question. No one living in Zion will say, I am ill, and the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. What do all Christians have in common? What is the one thing that we have in common with brothers and sisters, whether they're in Sudan or whether they're in Mayfair or wherever rich place that might be? Whether we are very wealthy or very poor, very successful or very unsuccessful, whatever people group we come from in the world. We have one thing in common, and that is that we are forgiven people. We are forgiven people. That is what Christians have in common. You cannot dwell eternally in God's place under Yahweh's rule unless you are forgiven. It is impossible to earn the right to live under Yahweh's rule. It is impossible with man. It is impossible for any human being to enter life without the grace of forgiveness. You see, we choose to make ourselves kings, and we thoroughly dislike the suggestion that we are all hopelessly lost sinners. It is offensively countercultural. 
But as Isaiah is so powerfully to prophesy as we go on with this book, there will never be any hope of forgiveness other than through the sacrificial death of the suffering servant Messiah. That is where his book is leading us to, to the inevitable conclusion that if there is no hope other than if we are forgiven, then God must win us forgiveness. And we can only have forgiveness one by us if God intervenes in the person of his suffering servant Messiah, his one and only beloved Son. We all, every one of us, have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way, but the Lord has laid on himself the sin of us all. And that is what we're going to remember as we come to communion now. Of course, we all want to live in a better, a more just world. And indeed, we can cooperate with all sorts of people to improve the conditions of life for our fellow human beings and indeed our planet. And Christians have always been in the forefront of progress in science and education, medicine, not least, of course, in this great city of Oxford where we live. But we do this just like the people in Isaiah's time, not to earn God's approval, but in response to His grace in Jesus, to demonstrate His love and obey His command to love Him and our neighbor, because we are so grateful, as they were then, for the immediate rescue so we are grateful for the great rescue, one for us at Calvary. Every day, let's be sure to remember in humility and gratitude that what unites us with brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world is that we are all, for, we are all forgiven sinners, invited by grace to dwell in safety under the eternal rule of the Lord who is King. Amen.